Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. The scripture reading for the day is Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, meaning Jesus. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And then she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't have known who and what kind of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. (laughs) I feel like this moment when he'd take his glasses off like this, you know? Simon, I have something to say to you. And he he said, say it, teacher. He He tells him a parable. Of course, Jesus always answers with a story. He says, And a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When the, they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon says, Then I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt? And he said, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered her house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears. And wipe them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among them, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You guys can have a seat. What a passage. Uh, let me pray for us one more time. God, we thank you for this time. I uh, pray that you would speak to us through your word as we look at uh, the radical hospitality of your arrival, Jesus, as we look at the hospitality of your love and embrace. Uh, God, would you speak to us? Would you make us your people at this church? that look like you, that usher in your kingdom through the simple, ordinary practices of food, through the simple, ordinary practices of eating with others and including others and loving others. God, we celebrate your arrival. Uh, We come anticipating your coming, and we are in the midst aware with our full eyes and hearts to see the Holy Spirit this morning. Would you speak to us? In Jesus' precious name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Advent, as we said earlier, is a time that means coming. It's a time that means Jesus has come, he will come, and he is here through the communion of the Spirit. And all throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see that he'll use this phrase, the Son of Man came. And it's often repeated to talk about the mission of Jesus. He'll say the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He said this at a meal um, with a tax collector and sinners, the Levi, who later became one of his disciples. And this is the mission of Jesus, to seek and save the lost. Mark will say it this way. Uh, the mission of Jesus is to give his life. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, but what I want to do in this series is not 
so much focus this Advent season on the mission, that we're going to get into that, um, but the method of the mission. Um, and so we're going to talk about, uh, Luke will also throw out this phrase, so he's using these phrases, and then he'll say, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So that's like how he came. I love that. He came eating and drinking. If you read the Gospel of Luke, uh, there is a reference to Jesus and food over 50 times. Can the hungry people say Amen. Yes. Uh, he is constantly eating, going from place to place. If the Gospel of Luke was made into a movie today, Brad Pitt would have to be a Palestinian Jesus because he's like eating everywhere he goes, and Jesus has always got food in his mouth. And you can't read the Gospel of Luke and get to the end of it and not be hungry. Um, he's constantly eating, and it's a symbol of who he's, he's, he's often um, the host. Uh, he's feeding the 5,000. He's the host at the Lord's table, or the Lord's supper. But Jesus is also the guest. He's the guest in the, the seat of the tax collector in Luke 5. He's the guest in this passage we're going to look at today with the Pharisee, uh, Simon, who invites him over. Uh, he's the guest uh, with Mary and Martha, with a tax collector, Zacchaeus, he is, sometimes you can't even tell the difference. We'll look at that later, whereas the road to Emmaus, you can't tell if he's the host or the guest. We're going to get into why that's important. But Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Now, I don't think he was those things, but it shows something about the nature of Jesus that he would have that reputation, does it not? That Jesus' reputation was one that he was a drunkard and a glutton. And so his mission was to come and seek to save the lost, to give his life, but the method is so important to the message. In other words, the, what we're looking at today is um, we're going to be doing this series called The Table, uh, The Kingdom of God and Hospitality, looking at various passages of Luke where Jesus has a meal with someone. And we're going to use that frame to talk about the kingdom of God and, and our relationships with each other and during this season. Uh, but the method is just as important often as the message. They go hand in hand. Who, who has not been kind of frustrated with Christians who have maybe tried to send out the message in a very horrible way, right? Like that's not, that, that, that's, it no longer becomes good news. But with the season, what we look at is the posture of hospitality. We're going to look at some practices of hospitality, but first I want to talk about what is the posture of hospitality. And Jesus will use the table as a test of our hearts. He'll use the table often as this test. So let me set the setting of this story. There's a leading Pharisee, Simon. Uh, his name's Simon uh, the Pharisee. Um, this would have been the equivalent of an elder in our church, a gospel community leader, a worship leader. Uh, Simon the Pharisee extends this invitation for Jesus to come over for dinner. This is a common thing to do. Jesus was now growing in popularity. It wasn't like Jesus was some random guy. Um, he was becoming somewhat known as a pro People were claiming him to be a prophet. Um, and then within Judaism, uh, there was different tribes or streams. There was the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes. Um, the Pharisees would have been um, synonymous to the conservative Christian of our time. Um, basically, if you are a conservative Christian here today uh, and you were transported back in time, back to the future style, you wouldn't fit in any other group but the Pharisees. Um, so you would be, if that's you, that, that you would be one of them. Uh, and so the Pharisees, we kind of knock on the Pharisees a lot because Jesus is constantly um, confronting them, but we kind of got to need to slow down and see the good of the Pharisees. The Pharisees love Scripture. Uh, they have the entire Torah memorized by the age of 10. That's Genesis Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We memorize like Anchorman quotes, um, Netflix movies, like 
They had the whole Torah memorized by the age of 10. All right, so these people took the scripture seriously, which was great. Uh, they uh, upheld the doctrine there. That was great. Uh, they desired for the purity of that. Um, and then, but also, uh, the, the, I would say that's the same true today of many conservative Christians, but the, the kind of the, the fine qualities, but also the, the, the tensions of their group would have been the same. Um, they had a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of pride, a lot of arrogance that they had interpreted the law rightly. No one else did. Um, they were separatists in the fact that they wanted to separate from anyone who differed from them, um, and they wanted to live separately from them in, in order to keep that pure. Um, and so this is who we have that invites Jesus at the table. They were very religious very moral, very meticulous in observing the obligations under the law for purity, for tithing, for Sabbath observances. Um, and so, but they also desired to do God's will. They very much were a mixed bag, all right, <laughs> as we all are today. So here we have Simon the Pharisee inviting Jesus over this table. And then it says in this passage that a woman from the city who was a sinner comes in. Now, we need to pause here because this phrase, sinner, whenever it's written in the epistles, Paul is using it in terms of recognizing that all of us were created good by God, but flawed and wait, we all have gone wayward from God. That's, we're all in that boat. Whenever the gospels use the phrase sinner, it is a, it is a social label. It is, a, it, is a, it is meant to be a social outcast. Um, that's, why it says, that's why they were outraged when Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, that the Pharisees couldn't conceive of this. It was going beyond their purity codes that they have orchestrated and created that were not biblical but were cultural. Um, and so uh, they were the bottom of the social ladder, and Jesus hangs out with the hurting and the broken. And so if we were to transport this into our time, it would not... So it says that Jesus would eat with tax collectors. That's not the same as IRS people. That would be people who would, like, raise money to kill your family. All right, so that would be the same as like ISIS, right? Um, this would be, uh, uh, you'd have prostitutes. What, today, that doesn't really translate. I think we look at someone in prostitution with a lot of mercy in our culture. We see them as a part of an oppressive system. We see that this was not their choice. Um, in their time, it would have been someone that was just completely other, a disgrace to be around socially. Um, this would be like having dinner with a white supremacist from Charlottesville. Um, inviting them over to Bad Apple and having a meal and a drink. This would be the same as having an ISIS member over to your house. Um, the, probably the closest that I have ever experienced this kind of reality um, to just keep um, um, things anonymous as much as I can. There was a member in the Lincoln Square neighborhood community um, who struggled with pedophilia. Um, and this person was outcasted by their entire uh, group. He was, he was a dad. And no one would speak to him, and I felt like God saying, you need to invite him, go get dinner with him. Um, and that was probably one of the hardest things to do, to hear his story, to hear his pain, to hear his perspective, to empathize with him, give him maybe the benefit of the doubt, even though, you know, there's accountability there and there's, there's issues there. That, but still, to sit at the table with someone, what, was, what would happen if someone from my community came in and saw us there eating? What would they think of me? That kind of feeling. That's what was going on here with Jesus, all right? You get the scene? You get the picture? So that's who Jesus, the type of people Jesus was eating with. And so food is used for both inclusion and exclusion. Jesus used this radical hospitality to include. Um, the Pharisees used this hot food as a way to exclude. This is historical. You go back to the civil rights time when there was no blacks allowed at the table, right? 
um, the Pharisees to sit down and eat with Gentiles was unthinkable. And so um, this woman comes in. Now, many people think that this woman was a, was a prostitute um, because she had a flask. She does radical things that look erotic. There's other passages that mention prostitutes. Um, but I want to say that it, we need to be very careful of jumping to labeling her as a prostitute. Um, the text doesn't say that. It just says that she was a sinner in the city. Again, a social outcast. Uh, it was a social label. Um, so we need to be fair and we need to be consistent. We don't look at uh, Luke chapter 5. Simon, Simon the disciple is called a sinner, but no commentators are going digging trying to figure out what his exact sins were. Um, but yet when we look at the woman that enters in the city that's an outcast, we begin to dialogue and start trying to pinpoint what we think her sins are. That's not what the intention of this passage is. But that's exactly what was going on through Simon's mind. See, a meal would have been this teacher come along, and then there would have been other religious men at this table. Um, they would have sat on cushions, uh, leaning in, and their feet would have been faced outward. And no women would be at this table, but women would come in, slave women would come in playing flutes for enjoyment, for conversation, sometimes even to be hired for sexual activity. Um, so, that, so, so it kind of looks weird that this woman would just barge on in. Um, but she does. And I think what happens is this woman hears the reputation of Jesus. Either she's um, had a conversation with Jesus earlier that we don't know about, or she is, sees her representation in the life of Jesus. She sees that Jesus is representing other people like her in the way he dines, in the way he shows who's welcomed. And so she is so moved with gratitude and, in, in, and just awe and worship that she barges in, she goes home, she gets her flask of ointment, she comes in to this place and says that she was standing behind Jesus, and she begins to, uh, to, begins to weep. Uh, she begins to weep. And, um, and, and there's this, this, later on, Jesus will tell the, the parable to Simon, comparing and contrasting their behavior. And what we see here is that everything that was meant to, for hospitality, Simon did none of it. He was a horrible host. And then the woman does everything that Simon should have done. So he says, Simon offered Jesus no water. This woman, she gets close to Jesus. She becomes overwhelmed with emotion. She begins to weep. Um, this weeping may have been a sign of repentance, because we know we're all broken. Or it was a sign of gratitude. Martin Luther calls these tears heart water. Heart water. And I think that's great, because true repentance often looks like sober gratitude. These tears come out of her heart, publicly acknowledging before the most self-righteous, condemning religious men. She walks in and says, yes, I am actually a sinner. I'm an outcast, and I have deep regret for how I've lived. She begins to bawl. I mean, you can just imagine. Imagine her in the midst of all these religious elites. She's the only woman there. Her makeup is running down her face. She probably has snot running from her nose. So much tears. It says that they wet Jesus' feet. Bless you. That's the kind of tears that were coming out of her, her, from her emotion. And I don't think she anticipated, and then it says that she began to dry off Jesus' feet with her hair. People then say, well, that's probably because she was a prostitute. Because in the Talmud, um, women could not let down their hair in public. If you did, it was a sign uh, of, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a grounds for divorce if you were married. Um, it was, a woman's hair was a woman's glory, and she takes what is her glory, and she wipes the master's feet in humility, and, and I think what happens here is she does not expect to come in with this emotion. She does not expect to wash Jesus' feet, but she has these overwhelming tears, and now she does not have a towel. She did not come prepared. The only thing she has is her hair, her glory. She uses her glory and wipes Jesus' dirty feet with her hair. 
And so what Simon should have done, which was to provide a basin of water for his feet as the host, does none of this. Yet she shows the true hospitality. And then second, Simon gave Jesus no kiss as a greeting. She kisses his feet. Um, So culturally, you would come in. Any Italian families in the house? Right? What do you do if you come home to your mom and you don't give her a kiss? Might get slapped, right? Like you're... you're, you're, It's caricature, sorry. I'm not Italian, so... Um, But... You'd greet someone with a kiss. You'd greet someone with a holy kiss. Romans 13 says it all the time. Uh, Jesus should have been greeted properly with a kiss from Simon. She kisses his feet. Her actions are passionate but not erotic. It's a sense of worship. He did, he did, and then Simon didn't anoint Jesus with oil. Traveling from a long day, would have gotten a little bit of olive oil, anointed Jesus with oil, helped him smell a little better. What does she, he does none of that. What does she do? She breaks her flask and anoints Jesus with oil. She takes this expensive perfume and then begins to anoint him. Now, Simon's response is he's embarrassed that this is happening in his house. And he says, this can't be a prophet because no prophet would let a woman like this touch him. Indeed, ironically, Jesus proves he's a prophet by guessing Simon's thoughts, because Simon said this privately, and then he said this to, because it said, Simon said this to himself about the woman, and Jesus is playing with him a little bit. He's this Pharisee who knows the law. He goes, hey, let me give you a parable. Um, this is like kindergarten spirituality, buddy. Get this. Jesus says there's two debtors. One owes 500, another owes 50. A bank came in, forgave both their debts. Who's more grateful? Simon's like, well, I suppose the one who had greater debt. And Jesus praises Simon for answering correctly. And what happens is, is this woman's actions were adoration of worship. They were outrageous worship. But Simon is focused on interviewing Jesus instead of worshiping Jesus. Simon is interviewing Jesus, looking for outrage, while she is practicing outrageous worship. So here she is just outrageously worshiping. She's not, this is, then he reframes it and spins it on her and shows that this, he, he sees the good in her and says, this is hospitality. You practice no hospitality. This worship is a picture of hospitality, what you should have done. So what he's doing is he's showing that the ground at of our basis is level, there are no purity codes. There are no sense of, of labels that we are all broken. What he does here is just completely radical. And imagine Jesus keeping the balance the whole time. Can you imagine Jesus, like, this woman doing this and Jesus just completely poised between this outrageous adoration and equal outrage rudeness of his host and he's still poised. I mean, Jesus, come on, you're the man. All right, so, and then, uh, so what does this mean for us? Um, I want to see, there's a lot of things this means. There's a lot of sense of the fact of, we're going to get into it in a minute, but uh, I want to see a couple of things in terms of first hospitality. In terms of hospitality, kingdom hospitality is not about presentation, it's about reality. When we think of hospitality, we think of Martha Stewart hospitality, right? We think of kinfolk, we think of this room and this table, which is so gorgeous. Thank you, Caitlin. But because the space is nice, it looks nice. But when there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing. You know, look at the kinfolk magazines. It's like they hired like several Swedish models, and everybody's got just a little bit of makeup, but not enough to make it tell if it's like really makeup or not. And everybody just looks so perfect. And and the reality is, is no one can do that here. Some of you don't have the jobs to do that. Some of you don't have a big table like this to do that. Some of you don't are in college. Just if you have, but the reality is. If you have ramen, you can practice kingdom hospitality. If you have ramen noodles in your house, you can practice hospitality. Because it's about reality. Nothing to dazzle us with or impress people. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. I poke fun of that. Um, but if it get, there's nothing wrong with it as long as it doesn't get in the way of kingdom hospitality. And so uh, radical hospitality is you being nothing more or less for who you really are and making space for the stranger for who they really are. And I'll say this. If you're in a season of life right now where you are just struggling to find Jesus, like, man, Jesus, where are you? I'm not sensing your presence. Um, go embrace the other. Go embrace the outsider. Go embrace the person who's been kind of labeled as unclean. And I guarantee you, you will find Jesus. You will, your heart will begin to grasp Jesus. You'll begin to experience Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 25, they, 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 people would come to him and say, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? He says, when you did for the least of these, you did for me. And so Jesus takes this woman and he equalizes them. And then less, second, hospitality is not entertainment. It's, it, and it's not a sense of, it's, 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 rep, uh, it's mutual. There's mutuality, there's reciprocity, in which we are both served and being served. Um, we went over to some friend's house. We got invited by our neighbors to uh, get together about six or seven families, and they call it Drake Fest. It's just a bunch of neighbors to get together, and the lines of hospitality were blurred. Who was host? Who was guest? I was telling Ashley, oh, we got to be on the time. we got to give this meal. It's got to be presentable. I came over, and people were eating at different times, some people serving, some people cleaning up. The lines of hope, when there's true hospitality, it's mutual. There's no lines of guest and host. And in and, and sense that this is what hap- is happening with Jesus, Jesus is the guest. This woman is being the host to Jesus. And, and there's a re- uh, reciprocity there. Um, we are about to, um, in service, um, practice this. Uh, we, we, for throughout Advent, we are going to give the offering. Um, we hope you've got, got some cash today. If not, no worries, but bring some spare change or cash. We're going to take the offering back at our communion table this week, and then we're going to pass the baskets around, and if there's any needy among us, if anybody can't pay your bill right now, we want you to take money out. Don't be bashful. Don't be taking $1. You need $50. You see that $50 bill. There's a reason that $50 bill just passed you, all right? So we want you to take that $50 bill. Um, now, the problem is, is for us, if I'm just be completely honest, acknowledge it, that's really weird for us. Um, that's really awkward, but what happens is, is, is it shows what our version of hospitality is. It shows that we, in our privilege, think that we need to be the host. No, in hospitality is that you are also the guest. That there's a, there's a mutuality, there's a reciprocity. So I want to encourage you, don't be bashful, don't be shy, don't be embarrassed if the money passes you and you need money in this season, we want you to take it. All right? Because if you're not, you're limiting the act of hospitality. You're squashing hospitality. Um, and so, um, second, radical hospitality subverts, it, it overturns the purity codes. It's so important. I don't want you to miss this. Have you ever been an outsider of a social situation, awkward or embarrassed in how you were to belong in a group? Some of you maybe are here right now feeling that. Um, the, we all live in which, which we negotiate with what it means to belong. That there's these ways of thinking and behaving that are rewarded in our social groups and ways of thinking and behaving that are penalized. And we're always negotiating this. We can look at this and be like, oh my gosh, how dare he? These are ancient things. No, we have purity codes today. And we live with a wide variety of sensi- moral sensibilities. And we have moral sensibilities on the left in the liberal group, and we have moral sensibilities on the right in conservative groups. And we're always, in a sense, going on these different spectrums and axes. So I'll just pick one, like sanctity and degrade, degradation. Um, we have ways of being repulsed and disgusted by behaviors or ideas, visceral reactions to them. 
And this is good because it regulates our behavior and how we should act in society, right? But we see this in politics, that um, for, for liberals, you see a, that moral sensibility of, of degradation, right? A degradation in, in the sense of, of sanctity. And if someone is not cared for, we have visceral reactions to that. But then on the conservative side, we see this moral axis of authority and subversion that when someone doesn't practice morality, there's outrage. Uh, but it's also according, each one of these have contamination, right? Now, it's great that we uphold oppressors to their perpetration, right? But we have institutions. But then once someone is, messes that up with that boundary, we have teeth and we basically treat them as inhumane now. But on this side, we have these moral codes of conservatives that um, we basically, it's all up to our own moral code. And basically, if we'll just ghost you, you know, if you don't abide by these codes silently. We won't really talk to your face, but we'll just ghost you silently and not to your face. And this is a story about boundaries, about who is in and who is out. Two groups represented, the Pharisees who wielded authority and the sinner outcast. And Jesus is right in the middle of these purity codes, and Jesus moves the axis of sanctity and degradation. He says, Simon, both of you are sinners. Both of you have come to me as broken. The issue is in the heart. The issue is in the heart. Both of you need forgiveness. Both of you need the power of the table. And so we, these signals of belonging and ridicule and public shame and poison and verbal biting and so on, I believe we're going to look back later in our time, a decade later, and realize how this degradation of the human being isn't helpful in having our voice heard or valued. It's not helpful in having our voice heard or valued, excuse me, and that we must have radical inclusion of the other. The word hospitality in the Greek means lover of stranger. It comes from the word philoxenia. Philo, that word Philadelphia, brotherly love, right? Think, and then xenia, what is it? Xenophobia, right? The fear of the stranger. Hospitality is the love of the stranger, the inclusion of the stranger, it is so important to God's kingdom that he actually looks at elders and says, if you don't practice hospitality as a pastor, you cannot be a pastor. I've had a, heard a lot of stories of pastors being like removed from their leadership due to like some other kind of moral failure. Never once have I heard someone says, yeah, that pastor hasn't had anybody at their home in three months. Like he can't be a pastor anymore. But scripture commands us to be hospitable. It is a command of his people that, and I love this because it's such an ordinary practice. Um, let, me, let me close with this quote, and, and we're going to move towards the table. Rosaria Butterfield says this, it's on the screen, it says, If our love for God is cold, it may, may well be because we have come to think he owes it to us, not that he paid our debt. The gospel is like a banker walking up to us when we cannot pay our mortgage. Rather than foreclosing, he writes a check that pays off that debt. If you met a banker like that, you would always be grateful to him and, your friends, and tell your friends about him. God is that spiritual banker who has paid our debt of sin through Jesus. The deeper we realize that he has dealt with us out of mercy in the midst of our disobedience, the greater will be our response of love. It is dangerous to see ourselves as little sinners, as the Pharisee did. Rather, we should see ourselves as unworthy objects of God's rich grace as the woman did. I'm sorry, that was totally the wrong quote, but it was really good. <laughs> and now her quote, and we'll close. 
radical ordinary hospitality. Keep, keep with me. Right here, put that one back up. Those who live to see it, I love this. Do you have this quote? Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live to it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. You see that? They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They know they are like meth addicts and sex trade workers. They take their own sin seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline with no exceptions. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as their own at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors they, to those they seem out... Um, they open doors, they seem out, uh, seek out the underprivileged. I love this last line. They know the gospel comes with a house key. So good. The gospel comes with a house key. And I just want to conclude with the power of the table. That at the table, we receive all because all are made in the image of God. We all have dignity. And in accepting all, we are resisting systems that exclude. We come every Sunday to this table as participants or violators who are bound up in these systems of exclusion. Sometimes we are right there with them and sometimes passive participants. But Jesus inspires us to include, welcome the outsider, the violator, the transgressor. And of course there's accountability here, but the heart of Christian community is a spirit of inclusion, of transformation, that change is possible for every human being. So we come to this table, we have to remember we turn inward and we look outward. We turn inward, we look outward. We have the privilege to associate with our own sin. Greater than obsessing with managing our social or religious group sins. This table calls us weekly to that connection of God's love. And Jesus is reversing these purity codes, and the purity that trumps degradation. It's the purity of love. It's the purity of mercy. And Jesus would touch lepers, and society thought, man, he's going to become unclean. But Jesus would touch a leper. Jesus didn't become unclean. And then the leper would become clean. And so we come to the table to experience his inclusion, his embrace, and his love. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, would you move in our time? We thank you for this table to come and sit and eat and drink your body that was broken for us, your blood spilled for us. Jesus, you've come into this world to make us new. Break down our barriers. Break down any spirit of exclusion and see the power of radical hospitality that if we were to open up our homes, that's how the gospel spreads, from house to house to house. Not inviting those like us, but those completely different from us so that we could both serve and be served in the power of your beautiful name, Jesus.